All right, it's good to see you all. Uh, I'm very excited about starting with you guys in February. Um, I pray that I'll be able to love you guys well and serve you guys well, not just preach well, but um, I think looking back on the last 10 years of ministry, uh, my views on what's important in pastoral ministry has changed a lot, and I think one of the hardest things and one of the most important things uh, is for a pastor to be able to genuinely love their congregation um, and just live life worshipping together, uh, worshipping the king together. So I'm excited. I hope you guys are as well. Um, Just before I go into today's Bible reading, uh, I just wanted to share something quickly. Uh, Some of you guys know I just came back from Costa last night in New Zealand. Um, It was crazy. Um, Like like on on so many different levels. Uh, When I first became a Christian, I volunteered at Sydney Costa when it used to exist and I prayed for a couple of things at that Costa on the final prayer night. One of them was that I prayed to be able to enter into pastoral ministry. God answered that prayer shortly after. Um, the other thing I prayed for was for an opportunity to be able to preach at a youth Costa one day in the future. Sydney Costa disappeared a few years after, so I thought that prayer would never be answered. Uh, and then a few weeks ago, Pastor Ray called me and said, Jay, do you want to preach at youth Costa in New Zealand? I was like, yes, yes. Oh, praise God. And I went there, and I witnessed some crazy stuff. Uh, I saw kids that came, you know, some of them walk with Jesus. Some of them, you could see, just had no relationship, no idea who this king was, no idea about what the gospel was all about. And uh, I had the opportunity of rotating with other, other preachers, uh, amazing preachers. And I, I'm going to move this over here. I think I'm going to knock this over. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, and each night we'd go out and preach and we'd see, you could just see in their faces, their hearts day by day were opening up to the gospel. And then the final night was just 200 kids, all of them, like not like majority, not like 95% of them, all of them bowing down before the king, crying out, pouring their hearts out to God. Even the kids that look like Eshes, it's like, I'm too, too cool for school kids. Like, oh, they'll never be, like, even them. They just made a beeline straight out to the front, just arms up, arms open, wanting to receive the king. Uh, I haven't seen that in so long. It was crazy. So praise God for that. I just wanted to share that with you guys. It was amazing. Um, So we're going to jump into today's passage. Uh, It comes from Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Other thing as well, I'll switch back to the ESV translation again. Um, I pulled out my Bible that I bought when I first got saved it was the Bible I had when I prayed at Costa as a volunteer like 12 years ago, and I thought it would be fitting if I took that same Bible to Costa this time around. So I've got that Bible here. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Um, so my translation might be a little bit different, uh, but the word of God reads, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for everything that's happened uh, this past week. And I thank you that we're all here together. Uh, Even though the weather is a bit gloomy, uh, we are excited to worship you. Uh, We've just sung about the nature of your reckless love for us. Uh, And so, Lord, as as we unpackage this encounter between Jesus and Levi or Matthew... Uh, and see your reckless love for this individual. Uh, Help us to understand that this is not just a passage that recounts an encounter from 2,000 years ago, but it foreshadows uh, the encounter that we can have with you every day. Uh, And so, Lord, we pray that your word would be transformative, it would shape us, and we pray that you would have your way with our hearts, Lord. 
Uh, if there are people here that are hardened to the gospel, I pray that you would conquer their hearts through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. One more thing as well. Uh, before I start my sermon, I forgot to mention it. Uh, I got to meet uh, a very special individual who apparently goes to assist or is the wife of the senior pastor at a sister church, Hong Hyojong Samunim, I think her name is. Um, she's just like a unlimited bundle of energy. Uh, I'm a Presbyterian. I've always been a Presbyterian. I don't move when I worship normally, but her passion was just it just rubs off on you. And at one point, I think she got very, very. Uh, there's a Korean word called taptape, like very um, annoyed or frustrated by my lack of movement. And she grabbed my arms and like waving my arms up. Like, come on, Jay. And I remember at one point I, she was she was jumping up and down, worshiping the king next to me. And I thought, I want to pray. I closed my eyes. I only prayed for like five seconds. And I opened my eyes and I turned and she's gone. And she's just over there jumping up and down, worshiping Jesus. And yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> she was amazing as well. Like I met so many amazing people. Uh, I don't think she's watching, but if you are watching, um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right. So in the last few sermons, uh, we got to see Jesus preach and we got to see him perform a number of signs, in, particularly in a city called Capernaum and throughout the region of Galilee. Um, and we saw that as a result, every time Jesus would come into Capernaum, everyone, like the whole town, not a couple of people, but the entire population of Capernaum, they'd come out to see Jesus. They wanted to hear what he had to say and see uh, what he would do. Uh, if you remember, they didn't understand truly who he, who he was. They didn't know that he was the Messiah the Christ, the Son of the living God. When they saw Jesus, they saw an amazing preacher. Uh, they saw a miracle healer. They saw an exorcist. And so they didn't really come out to see Jesus for the right reasons. They just wanted to see something awesome. Uh, but everyone would come out to see Jesus. And in today's passage, uh, because of the crowd, um, like the whole town had come out, he couldn't stay in Peter's home anymore. And so we see that today's passage, the scene moves out to the sea. Uh, he's by the sea, probably the Sea of Galilee, because that was the closest sea next to Capernaum. And as Jesus was walking by the sea, uh, verse 14 says, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, I don't know what you know about Levi and or Matthew is his name. Um, so if you're confused, you had two names. There was Levi, and then he became Matthew, which means the gift of God, I think, off the top of my head. Um, but Matthew was a tax collector by trade. And being a tax collector, uh, it made you one of the most hated people in all of Israel, by default. Um, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but being a tax collector, it was like back in that day, tax collector was like, our equivalent of the mafia, uh, sort of, in a way. And you'll, you'll find out why in a moment. Um, for starters, if you were a tax collector, you were hated because you were considered a traitor to the people of Israel. You were considered one of the lackeys for the Roman Empire, collecting taxes from your own people, ripping off your own people. And um, the Roman Empire back then, they had a really good tax system. Uh, it was one of the best tax systems of the day, and they required certain types of taxes to be paid. And this is a little bit boring, but it's important to be aware of to understand the full context of today's passage. Um, there were three main types of, types of taxes. The first was what was called a poll tax. Um, and it was a tax that you paid simply for being alive. Uh, if you were between the ages of 14 and 65, you had to pay for being, being alive, pretty much. Um, I don't know how that would go down in today's, today's government. Um, you'd probably not vote for that government if they charged you simply for being alive. But that, that was uh, what they had back in the day. It was a poll tax. So if you were a man between the ages of 14 and 65, you had to pay a poll tax. And for women, uh, it was between the ages of 12 and 65. Uh, there was also called something called a ground tax. And ground tax, um, the hint, it's in the name, um, Anything that you earn from the ground, you had to pay tax on. So if you were like a, um, a, a farmer, you'd have to pay a tenth 
uh, of everything that you farmed, all your produce, a tenth of that would have to go to the government. If you're a winemaker, 20% of your wine uh, belonged to the government, or if you made oil, uh, that oil would belong to the government. And the same thing for fishermen as well. If you caught a certain amount of fish, about 10, uh, 10 to 20% of your catch would go to the government. And, you know, Capernaum itself, where Jesus has been spending a lot of time, uh, that was actually a fishing town, a town where the fishing industry was booming. Um, now, there was also an income tax, uh, which was 1%, which is awesome. Uh, I would love income tax to be 1%. Uh, we don't have the luxury of income tax being 1%. But, you know, this, this particular tax system, there were so many different aspects of it, but it was actually not a bad system. Um, it was one of the reasons why the Roman Empire was so sophisticated and advanced. Um, the money that they used from those taxes, uh, it was very affordable. Um, the rate, the, the tax rates that they had, you know, we laugh at, you know, being a live tax, but really it, it, it was quite affordable. And that money was used to create one of the strongest economies that existed at the time. It was used to fund one of the most powerful national armies of that time. And they created roads and infrastructure like no other civilization had ever done before. Like, if you ever study church history in this particular part of church history, you actually find out that one of the reasons that God chose to send Christ at this particular time was because of the Roman infrastructure. Uh, there were roads and, you know, transport, and it was just easy to get from one place to another because of the Roman Empire. And the reason Christ came at this time was because if a message was going to travel from one city to another, now was the time to do it. So we can be critical of the Roman Empire, but they did some pretty awesome things. Um, now, I don't know if there's anyone here that works for the ATO, or the Australian Taxation Office, or if anyone is aware of their hiring process. But like with any company, uh, you'd assume that if they were going to hire someone, they'd probably put an ad up on LinkedIn or seek.com.au um, an applicant would submit their resume detailing all their strengths, weaknesses, um, their tertiary qualifications, and what they can bring to the ATO. The ATO would then take those resumes, look for the, the most qualified candidates, make a short list, and then interview them one by one. They question them, they drill them to get the best possible candidate, and they would hire them based off their experience and their qualification. And then once they'd be hired, uh, I don't know if any of you work for finance companies. I work, I've been working in the finance industry for 16, 17 years now. Um, they have also what's called risk and compliance protocols. And this is just a regulatory framework that's in place to make sure employers don't do anything dodgy, that they stick to the rules, don't steal from the company, don't, don't do anything illegal. Um, now, if this kind of a process was implemented by the Roman Empire... Uh, I don't think people like Matthew and tax collectors like him would have been hated so much. And I don't think they would have been viewed like a criminal enterprise, uh, which is really what tax collectors were. They were really like the mafia of the day, uh, ripping people off. The way the Roman Empire hired tax collectors back in the, in the first century uh, wasn't through like LinkedIn or seek.com.au. wasn't like an interview process. They would actually hold auctions. So if you, if you can imagine... The whole, you know, the city of Sydney and all the suburbs, they would auction off suburb by suburb. And people that were interested in becoming tax collectors would come and they would bid on these auctions. You know, if, if I wanted to win Greenacre, I would start bidding and it would be a bidding war. And the person that would win the auction, if I won Greenacre, then the whole jurisdiction of Greenacre would now belong to me. The poll tax, the ground tax the income tax, it would be my job to collect the tax from everyone in the city. And I would have to kick up uh, the minimum amount that the government would send. So whatever the poll tax rates, income tax rates, and the ground tax rates were, I would have to collect that from everyone and send it to the Roman government. However, everything beyond that, that I would collect, I would get to keep. And now in all fairness, like with any living or any profession, you have to make a living, don't you? 
So with these tax collectors, even though they're collecting tax from their own people, you know, it's a job. You have to survive. So, you know, it's understandable if they collected a bit of extra money, skimmed a bit of money money off the top to pay uh, for their daily expenses. And if that was the case, people like Levi or Matthew probably wouldn't have been so hated. However, in order to incentivize this role, uh, the Roman government would actually turn a blind eye to any dodgy behavior. Like the risk and compliance protocols that companies have in place, there was none of that back then. Uh, And so tax collectors back then really functioned the way the mafia and people in the underworld function today. They weren't just content with making enough to pay for their daily food and their expenses. Uh, They really, really wanted it all. It was a criminal culture, pretty much. And what's more was that no one could stop these guys because they had so much money, they would actually pay thugs and goons uh, to help them collect their money. And so these tax collectors, they, they'd make sure they ripped everyone off and they would come up with all kinds of ridiculous things to tax. Like they would literally come up with anything. Like, I don't know how many people drive in here, but imagine you drove to, t- uh, to church and imagine I was the tax collector for Greenacre and I came up to you, I was like, oh, that's a nice car. Got four wheels on your car better pay some wheel tax, one for each wheel. This is what they did. Like, we laugh about it, but this really was the culture back then. And in addition to this, they would lie about what the minimum tax rates were. Like the government set a tax rate that was affordable, but they would hike up these tax rates so that they could collect more money. And in this way, they really were like the mafia. And let's say that you didn't have enough money. Like, let's say that you came to church and you paid wheel tax and you went to go eat at church and I'm like, oh, Korean food tax as well. Oh, you're going to get a cup of coffee? Give me your coffee tax. And you got no money left. And you say, Jay, I've got no money. And as a tax collector, I'd say, no money? No problems. I give loans as well. And these guys, as a side gig, would also act as loan sharks. And I don't know if you know what a loan shark is, but a loan shark is a group of criminal people that give loans to people they know can't afford loans or can't afford to pay it back. And they would charge them ridiculous interest rates. Like, I don't know what the interest rates are now at the bank, but they would charge like 30, 40, 50%, like something ridiculous, knowing that they, they wouldn't be able to pay it back. These tax collectors really really acted like loan sharks and really like the mafia today. They were the criminal enterprise of the day. And as a result, everyone in Israel really looked at them as the scum of the earth. Now, that was a bit of a long explanation as to what kind of a person Matthew was. Um, And the reason I give this explanation is because when we think of tax collectors and people like Matthew, we kind of have this tendency to sympathize with tax collectors. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen, like, Jesus movies, or I think there was, like, a series called The Bible not that long ago that, you know, they acted out episodes from different scenes of the Bible. But every time I would see this scene where Jesus would call Matthew, like, come follow me. I love you. You're going to be one of my disciples. They would present Matthew as this, like, victim, this victim of his day. Like this guy that just wants to be loved and he feels empty. And they usually, like, they, they, they have this actor sit at a, a tax booth and he just looks really sad and depressed. And if he was a really good actor, he might, might, might be able to shed a tear and have, like, one tear coming down. And you really feel sorry for him when you'd see him. And then you'd see Jesus appear. Come, Matthew, follow me. And then Matthew's life would be radically changed. He, he'd be loved. He'd no longer have to be a victim. And, you know, that, that's, that's how we view people that encounter Jesus, don't we? And when we look at the Pharisees that criticized Jesus for calling men like Matthew, we were very critical of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. Like, how can Jesus call such a filthy sinner? How can he have dinner and, um, how can he have dinner and eat with men like Matthew? We're very critical of the Jewish leaders. However, if you put into context that Matthew was part of the mafia, pretty much, was an organized crime figure, 
that his group of people in his profession bankrupted countless families, destroyed lives, took away money from people that they were going to use to feed their children, and that Jesus was hanging out with a crew like this, you can kind of sympathize with why the Pharisees were so critical. And Jesus goes and hangs out with Matthew. If you were to translate today's passage into today's context, it'd be like if you were to see Pastor Ray going out and hanging out with like Korean loan sharks. And you know, like imagine if someone took a photo of Pastor Ray going to the mansion of the local mafia figure and he's seated at a long... I don't know if you've ever seen The Godfather. I love The Godfather trilogy. But there's like these scenes where they, it's like a, a long table and all the crime figures are like sitting there with like their gold watches and smoking cigars and just eating lavish food. Imagine Pastor Ray, or even me, sitting there eating lobster and sashimi and I don't know what rich people eat, but you'd be like, Who, what, what, is this guy in his right mind? Matthew's home as well would have... By no means being a modest home. This guy was rich. Would have had like a mansion with like a fountain out the front, swimming pool, tennis schools. Like it would have been a huge home and Jesus was there. The religious leader, the new Messiah that's appeared is having dinner with a bunch of criminals and not just one person. It wasn't just Matthew. But verse 15 says, And as he reclined at his table, many, many tax collectors and sinners were with Jesus, reclining with Jesus and his disciples, but there were many that followed him. If you read Luke's version of this particular event in Luke 5.29, Luke says that it was a large company of tax collectors. Like, an entire, like if you think of a company, an entire department of tax collectors, of criminal figures, Jesus was having a meal, a great and lavish feast with these men. He was having lunch with the mafia. And it was a huge home. Uh, and just on a side note as well, um, back then, like, it wasn't like the Godfather, how they're, like, they're all seated at a table. Uh, they actually ate lying down. So if you notice the passage, it says that they were reclining at a table. I don't know what that would have looked like. My wife hates when I eat stuff lying down on my bed. Uh, but that's, that's how they ate back then. So if you're married and your wife criticizes you, just tell her you're being biblical. <laughs> uh, yeah. So... This house wasn't a small house. It would have been massive to accommodate an entire department of tax collectors. It wouldn't have been a small table. It would have been a massive table so that it could seat everyone, not even sitting down. If you're sitting down, you take up less space. They were lying around the table, so it would have been a massive table. And for the Pharisees, this would have been a bizarre sight. I think even for Jesus' disciples, I think they would have questioned their calling like, I'm I'm following a guy that hangs out with criminals. Um, and so even the Pharisees, they go up to the tax collectors and they ask him, why your master, the guy that you threw away everything for, he's eating with criminals. He's eating with sinners. These aren't guys that were like just like a, that's, that made a wrong turn at some point in life. These guys are like hardened criminals. They've ruined, ruined so many people. And they say to the disciples, why, why is your master hanging out with these guys? He's tax collectors and sinners. And you know what? I think even the disciples were at a loss for words. Because if you look at today's passage, the disciples don't respond. It's Jesus that responds. In verse 17, Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, the heart of the gospel continue, begins and continues in a place of ongoing repentance. Man is broken because of sin, cut off from God because of sin. And the road to restoration and healing through the gospel, it begins at a place of repentance, continues at a place of repentance. And for Christians, our hope lies in the fact that Jesus has achieved it all for us. We place our trust and our hope in him, and we lean upon the cross as the hope of our salvation. And repentance is the mark of faith in Jesus. You know, when I was younger and I became a Christian, I would serve at church 
And I, I did everything. Like, I don't know if you've seen those memes about, like, the hottest, godliest man in the church is the guy that carries, like, four chairs under each arm, like, preparing for service. Like, I was that guy. And I remember, like, female elder, like, female, they call them church mothers, like, kwonsanim is the word in Korean, but, like, female church leaders and church elders would look at me and be like, oh, look at Jay. Look at that faith. And they would equate all the hard, like me carrying like four chairs under each arm. They're like, that, that's a faithful man. And it gave me a bit of a big head. I was like, yeah, I am. Look how many chairs I've got under each arm. And we equate, you know, I was there. I was, I was the first one at church. I would open the church doors up. I would, I'd be the last one to leave. I'd lock up the church. Uh, when we'd have a youth night or, you know, a young adult's dinner, I'd always be in the kitchen cooking. I'd, I'd do the dishes. And people would look at that. And other people like me that did that, and they'd be like, that's, that's faith. And whilst we should applaud hard workers in the church when I look back now, uh, I think for today, like for me, what faith actually is, is not how many chairs you can carry under each arm. Um, I think the type of faith that impresses me, that I think is a biblical faith, that comes to the heart of what the gospel is all about, is when I see someone no matter how much of a mess their life is in, no matter how many times they hit rock bottom, when I see that person unashamedly in the midst of their sin and failures run to Jesus, and not just run to him, but run in confidence, knowing in their mind that Jesus is going to take them back every time, when I see them run with confidence, no matter how many times they've screwed up, to run with confidence and with expectation, that kind of faith blows me away. Because I see in this person, compared to the person that carries like 10 chairs under each arm, this person seems to have a strong understanding that God's grace will always be enough. That his acceptance from God is guaranteed because his trust is in the cross. And in today's passage, what Jesus says to the Pharisees is he's saying, you know, in his response, why is he hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus says, you know what, I've come to heal people who not only recognize that their life is a mess, but I've come to heal people who've come to a place where they realize that the solution cannot be found in their hard work. The solution can't be found with carrying 10 chairs under their arms. The solution can't be found with them working hard within the church to work their way back to God. Because guess what? People like that don't realize they're sick. People like that will never come to a place of repentance because they don't realize they need a physician. That's what Jesus says to the Pharisees. And that's how today's passage ends. And so like with any week, uh, as Pastor Eddie always liked to say, so what? What's the point of today's passage? To not carry 10 chairs under your arms? To learn to lie down while you're eating at the dinner table? I want to share two things that I'm hoping will be helpful for you and these were things that I constantly have to remind myself of because I always forget. And I'm hoping this will be as transforming for you guys as it was for me and always is when I remind myself. Uh, number one, God's love will never leave you as you are. Let me repeat that. God's love for you will never leave you as you are. One of the things I appreciated about this Costa conference, like I've been to a lot of Christian conferences and they like to remind the congregation, God loves you. God loves you as you are. And that's true. And they say, come to Jesus as you are. And rightly so. But I've seen a lot of people forget to remind people that God loves you as you are, accepts you as you are, but he loves too much, loves you too much 
to leave you as you are. And that's a foreign concept. That's an offensive thing in today's world. Like, I don't know who's in relationships, but if you've been married, um, you'll find your spouse will sometimes say, don't try to change me. You should love me for me. And my wife always says, I love you. when you married me, you married all my faults and everything that, like, that's terrible, you married that as well, so don't try to change me. And then she'll try to change everything about me that she doesn't like. <laughs> but come to Jesus as you are because he accepts you as you are. He loves you as you are. 100% true. And it's always moved my heart when I see people in their unbelief, in the midst of their sin, choose to come to Jesus as they are, to give their life to God. However, we have to be careful to understand that whilst Jesus loves us as we are, if we truly repent of our sins and place our faith in him, the Holy Spirit will not leave us as we are. When we come to Jesus in the midst of our sin, immersed in our sin, where everything and anything in the world sits on the throne of our life except Jesus, Jesus will accept you as you are. He'll love you as you are, but he's not going to leave you as you are. When you come to a place of repentance, the word repentance literally means to turn away, to make a 180 degree turn, to turn away from sin, turn away from the idols of your life and turn to King Jesus, to change the trajectory and the direction your life is moving. Now, this doesn't mean you're not going to sin. Let me be clear about that. When you repent and you make that turn, you are still going to stumble. You are still going to be a victim of Satan's attempts to cause you to fall into sin. And you will. You'll fall into sin. You will stumble. But the difference is that this time when you fall as a follower of Jesus, you fall facing Jesus. You get up facing Jesus. And when you get up and repent, your direction doesn't change. You just keep on moving in the direction that you fell over in. And when we look at Levi or Matthew in today's passage uh, and his encounter with Jesus, Jesus says, follow me. And if you're like me, you've probably just skimmed over this and completely missed the significance of what actually took place when Jesus uttered those two words. Because Jesus says, follow me. And that's all that Matthew needs. He gets up and he follows Jesus. And when I say that this is significant, if we were to compare Matthew to, let's say, for example, Peter or Andrew, who were fishermen by trade, like Peter and Andrew had a family fishing business they left their nets to follow Jesus. Jesus says, I'll make you fishers of men. And they left and they followed Jesus. But if at some point Peter and Andrew decided, you know what, I, I don't think I want to follow Jesus anymore. I don't know if I want to hang out with a guy that hangs out with the mafia. They could have just gone back to their family business. Or even if that business got dissolved, all they'd need to do is buy a boat, a net or a fishing rod and they'd be able to start their business again. But for someone like Matthew, you have to remember that he was a tax collector by trade. That was his only source of income. And when he got up, when Jesus said, follow me, he got up and left his tax booth. This was the district that he spent all his money on to try and purchase the rights to, to collect tax. And by getting up, abandoning his tax booth and his post and choosing to follow Jesus, he was abandoning his rights to collect tax in that region. Because what the Roman government would have done is, oh, this guy abandoned his post. All right, we're going to take it away from him and sell it again to the next highest bidder. And so if Matthew at some point said, actually, I think I made a mistake in following this Jesus. Unlike Peter and Andrew, Matthew had nothing to come back to. And not only that, because Matthew, even if he quit his job as a tax collector, everyone would have remembered him as a tax collector. 
Not only could he not go back to being a tax collector, who would hire the scum of the earth mafia to work for them? Like, I've got friends that were in high school, like, the back, there was a lot of, like, gangs back then. Some of them went to jail, and I see them now. They can't get a job. They've got that criminal record against their name, and, you know, they can't really develop a career. This would have been the position that Matthew would have been in. He was seen as a scumbag tax collector who ripped everything off, that ruined people's lives, destroyed families. But by following Jesus, by hearing the words, follow me, getting up, abandoning his post, abandoning his vocation, this was a real-world demonstration of Matthew's repentance, a literal turning away from his old sinful lifestyle, a turning away from sin, saying, I am done with this life. I'm going to give it all up and I'm going to follow Jesus. That's what it was. And you know what? This was why Jesus was at Matthew's place. You know, the Pharisees looked at Jesus and was like, why is he eating at the home of a gangster? Seated at a table, surrounded by gangsters. You know, aren't religious leaders meant to be pious and humble, yet he's sitting here eating lobster and, you know, rich people food? I don't know what rich people food is. This would have looked bizarre to the Pharisees. It would have looked bizarre to his disciples. But the reason Jesus did this was because Matthew's repentance was something to celebrate. Out of everyone, out of the 12 disciples, I would say that Matthew materially had the most to lose. He had everything. He had a six-figure job. He had Probably they didn't have Ferraris and Lamborghinis back then, but it would have been the equivalent. He would have had all the money in the world. He would have had the best houses, the best clothes, best everything. And you got the, best, you got the most money, probably would have had the prettiest women back in the day as well. Like he would have had everything. But Jesus saw this as a celebration. Because in Matthew, you would have seen someone with the most hardened heart have it replaced with the heart of flesh. A man come to a place of repentance. A man that acknowledged that God loved him as he was, accepted him as he was, but loved him too much to leave him as he was. And just as Matthew abandoned his wicked ways, his old lifestyle, through the gospel, as we live a life of not just a one-time repentance, not just repenting when we come to faith in Jesus, but an ongoing repentance, what we'll find is that Jesus changes us day by day through our ongoing repentance to look more and more like him. And for some people, that will happen rapidly. Like, you'll find people that just, like, suddenly overnight, they're just a completely new person. For other people, it'll be a slightly longer process. But the victory of the cross means that even if you fall and you stumble, even if it's a slow process, even if you fail along the way, you will fail and fall down facing Jesus. And if you fall down facing Jesus, the only thing that's left is to repent, get up, and keep moving and walking, facing Jesus. So point number one, God loves you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. Second point and final point, discover the value and worth of Jesus. Now, it's true that on this side of eternity, we're always going to be of the flesh in some capacity. We're always going to be sinful as long as we live in this world. Um, we're saved from the curse of sin, but we're not actually saved from sin itself. Like, even after you come to faith in Jesus, you still sin. Um, so we aren't saved from sin, but we are saved from the curse of sin, which is death. And we're saved from the wrath of God. I don't know if you're aware of this, but you're not necessarily saved from Satan. You're saved from God himself, because John chapter 3 says that God's wrath was coming for us. And Jesus takes our punishment the wrath that was meant for us from God, Jesus, takes it upon himself on the cross. But we still sin. And for the follower of Jesus, we're called to engage in spiritual warfare, to wage war against our flesh 
and wage war against our sin. But the big question is, how do you do that? How do you wage war against your own sin? I remember after I became a Christian, I thought one day, you know what? I'm not going to sin today. I'm going to try today for the glory of God to not sin. Everything in my mind today is going to be pure. And I got ready, got dressed for work, walked out of my door to go to the bus stop to catch the bus to work, and I lasted about 30 seconds before a sinful thought popped into my head. And it popped into my head because the guy walking in front of me suddenly stopped to look at his phone. And I don't know, like one of my pet peeves is when someone's walking in front of you and you're in a rush, and then suddenly they just stop and they're just like on their phone. I'm like, get out of the way. That's the most that you can do by your own strength. Uh, I don't know if you ever studied church history. Even if you don't go to Bible college, I would encourage you to read books on church history. Um, And if you study church history, you'll study about the Catholic Church as well. And Catholic monks back in that day and the Jesuit priests, um, one thing they used to do was they would torture, physically torture themselves whenever a sinful thought would enter into their head. Or if they think, oh, I think I'm going to sin soon, they would start torturing themselves. And I'll give you an example. Let's say that a monk was walking down the street and they saw a very beautiful girl walking past. You know, it's not sinful to acknowledge, oh, what a beautiful person. Beautiful, you know, my friend, when I try to introduce him to someone, I'm like, what about this girl? He won't admit, oh, she's beautiful. He's like, she's a beautiful creation of God. Because he just doesn't want to admit, oh, she's pretty. But these Catholic monks, if they saw a beautiful person, they could acknowledge, okay, this is a beautiful person. But the moment they got afraid, okay, this, is, this might actually turn into sexual sin, lust of the eyes. What they would do to erase any thought from their mind was they would take a whip. If you've ever seen Passion of the Christ, the whip with like the barbed nails and all that, they take a whip like that and start whipping themselves. Or... Uh, if they would walk past and they see like a bush, like a rose, I don't know if you've ever seen roses grow, but the roses, it's like very, it's got a lot of thorns. They would find a thorn bush, and if they saw a beautiful woman walking past, they would they throw their body, physically jump and throw their bodies into a bush of thorns so that the pain, physical pain, would take away any sinful thought that they had in their mind. Now you've got to admire. This kind of conviction, this, this desire to fight and get rid of sin, but it's one of the dumbest things I've ever read. Because this isn't how God tells us to fight sin. It's impressive, but very, very, very stupid. But then that leaves the question, how do you fight sin? How do you fight sin effectively? Like, is there, is there a way to fight sin effectively? And what we find in today's passage, if you read between the lines, is that one of the most effective ways, I would say the most powerful way to fight sin is to find something of greater value than the sin. And for Matthew, as he sat at his tax booth, he had all the riches in the world immersed in a sinful criminal enterprise. Matthew found in Jesus someone of greater worth than anything that this world had to offer. When he looked to Jesus and he heard Jesus say, follow me, he looked to Jesus and he saw someone that was worthy of everything in his life, that everything in the world paled in comparison the moment he saw Christ. Now, this week I mentioned I was at Costa, New Zealand, and uh, my wife has been bugging me for a while to start losing a bit of weight. Um, I've got a whole bunch of suits at home. If you don't notice, I've been wearing the same suit every time I've come to preach here. Uh, The reason being is because I've got a whole bunch of perfectly fine suits that don't fit me anymore because I've gained a bit of belly fat. Uh, And so my wife's been bugging me to, come on, Jay, do some, get diet, Go to the gym, and I decided when I went to Costa, you know what, I'm going to portion control. I'm going to eat, like, if, they, if, if they've got, like, you know, 
meat and you know pasta. I'll, I'll do away with the pasta and I'll just have the meat and you know I won't. I'll cut out some carbs. Um, but then I saw the food being served. Uh, they had oh, so good. They had some amazing food. And then on top of that, for the speakers, they brought like five. Like someone bought fried chicken from Auckland and drove it an hour and a half just to feed the speakers. And I saw that. I was like, that is going in my mouth. I don't care who I have to fight or who I have to knock out of the way. That is going in my mouth. Brownies as well. This is going in my stomach. I don't care. Um, The moment I saw the food, this idea of dieting and losing weight, even the thought of the suits that I could potentially be wearing, all paled in comparison. And as weird as that sounds, that's what our relationship with Jesus should look like. As we open the scriptures and do our daily devotion, as we spend time communing with the Lord in prayer, you're not going to become perfect sinless saints overnight. But what you'll find is that bit by bit, as you spend more and more time with God through the scriptures and through prayer, your time with Jesus will start to uncover more and more the value of Jesus you'll start to understand more and more how worthy he is of our time and everything else that we have in this life. And this is something very special. You know, it's one one thing for me to prepare a sermon, exegete a passage, prepare a sermon and tell you that Jesus is worthy. It's another thing, you know, to to sing songs that Jesus is worthy above all things. But there's very very something There's something very special about spending time alone with God, being in the presence of God, seeking his voice through his word, speaking to him alone in prayer. There's something very special about that because the Holy Spirit starts to uncover your eyes bit by bit. It's almost like a painting that's been covered and you're just stripping away the wrapping and seeing what lies underneath It's a transformational experience that the Holy Spirit does to open your heart so that you can understand how worthy Jesus is. And as he does that, we start to see Christ in all of his majesty, his magnificence, his beauty. And when that happens, everything else in the world starts to pale in comparison. On paper, Matthew looked like a fool to the world for giving up his six-figure job, his millionaire lifestyle, giving it all up to follow a master that would eventually go to the cross and die. But Matthew saw something in Jesus that he realized was greater than all the temporal things in this world combined. And our application for today should be to discover this same Jesus, the worth of this same Jesus. And those are the two points I want to conclude with. Point number one, remember that God's love, he might love you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. And point number two, as we spend time alone with the king, prayerfully seek to be able to comprehend and have the worthiness of Jesus unveiled to you by the Holy Spirit. So I'd like to invite the worship team up in this moment and we'll go into a time of prayer. Um, I don't know where you're at in your walk with Jesus. Uh, If you're like me, you've probably gone through periods where you've backslidden and you're in a place where you feel like you've reached the point of no return. Or maybe you had Jesus on the throne of your life and then something else captivated your heart, so that the temporal things of this world consumed your love for the king. So that if, if that's, in, that's you, uh, I would encourage you in this moment to spend some time in solitude. Just close your eyes, drown everything out, and just focus on this king and approach him the way that Matthew did. No hesitation but in recognizing his worthiness without a second thought uh, runs to him. So I invite you to come to the king in this moment in prayer. 
Remember that His love for you will not leave you as you are. His love is a transformative love. And as we pray, uh, let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us rediscover the worth of the King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Matthew, we thank you that Mark recorded this encounter in the Scriptures, that in the Gospels, Mark would record Levi's hardened heart, criminal immersed in sin, we have to see in an instant the worthiness of Jesus Christ our Lord, and in a moment he saw in Jesus a far greater worth than everything that he was able to accumulate in his life, that he was willing to abandon it all and follow after the King. I pray, O oh Lord, to all of us that we wouldn't just come to a place of a one-time repentance, but a place of ongoing repentance to remind ourselves that Jesus is worthy than anything this world has to offer. Father, we, th we thank you for this transformational encounter that Matthew had with the Lord Jesus. That you would transform him from being Levi, the tax collector, into Matthew, the apostle. A name that means the gift of God. No longer the scum of the earth. No longer a part of the mafia. But to becoming an apostle who would be a gift from God. A man who would eventually write one of the books, one of the Gospels in our New Testament. What a transformation, Lord. And we pray that we would read this account not just as a recollection of something that happened in the ministry of Jesus, but a transformative encounter that you invite us to partake in today. That your Holy Spirit not only changed Matthew, but invites us that when we come to a place of repentance, that we too can come to the throne of grace in confidence. A confidence that when we sin, that not just the one-time repentance when we come to faith, but even as we live the Christian life day by day, that even when we sin, that we can know that we sin and fall down facing you and that we can get up facing you, keep moving forward facing you, and that you will not turn us away. And so, Lord, we pray that we would see this transformation as a celebration, that we would not allow Satan to consume our hearts with guilt each time we fail, but to look past the shame and look forward to the celebration that we can participate in each time we repent and start again. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.